Section 33 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 17, Part 1 of the lord's supper and the benefits conferred by it this chapter is divided into two principal heads one the first part shows what it is that god exhibits in the holy supper sections one through four and then in what way and how far it becomes ours sections five through eleven two the second part is chiefly occupied with the refutation of the errors which superstition has introduced in regard to the lord's supper and first, transubstantiation is refuted, sections 12 to 15. Next, consubstantiation and ubiquity, sections 16 to 19. Thirdly, it is shown that the institution itself is opposed to those hyperbolical doctors, sections 20 to 25. Fourth, the orthodox view is confirmed by other arguments derived from scripture, sections 26 to 27. Fifth, the authority of the fathers is shown to support the same view. Sixth, the presence for which opponents contend is overthrown, and another presence established. Sections 29 to 32. Seventh, what the nature of our communion ought to be. Sections 33 and 34. Eighth, the adoration introduced by opponents refuted. For what end the Lord's Supper was instituted. Sections 35 to 39. Lastly, the examination of communicants is considered, sections 40 to 42, of the external rites to be observed, a frequent communion in both kinds, objections refuted, sections 43 to 50. Sections 1. Why the Holy Supper was instituted by Christ, the knowledge of the sacrament, how necessary, the signs used, why there are no others appointed. 2. The manifold uses and advantages of this sacrament to the pious. 3. The Lord's Supper exhibits the great blessings of redemption, and even Christ himself. This even evident from the words of the institution, the things specially to be considered in them. Congruity of the signs and the things signified. 4. The chief parts of this sacrament. 5. How Christ, the bread of life, is to be received by us. Two faults to be avoided. The receiving of it must bear reference both to faith and the effect of faith. What meant by eating Christ? In what sense Christ the bread of life? 6. This mode of eating confirmed by the authority of Augustine and Chrysostom. 7. It is not sufficient, while omitting all mention of flesh and blood, to recognize this communion merely as spiritual. It is impossible fully to comprehend it in the present life. 8. In explanation of it, it may be observed, 1. There is no life at all save in Christ. 2. Christ has life in a twofold sense, first, in himself, as he is God, and secondly, by transfusing it into the flesh which he assumed, that he might thereby communicate life to us. 9. This confirmed from Cyril, and by a familiar example, how the flesh of Christ gives life and what the nature of our communion with Christ. 10. No distance of place can impede it. In the supper it is not presented as an empty symbol, but, as the apostle testifies, we receive the reality. 
objection that the expression is figurative answer a sure rule with regard to the sacraments eleven conclusion of the first part of the chapter the sacrament of the supper consists of two parts namely corporeal signs and spiritual truth these comprehend the meaning matter and effect christ truly exhibited to us by symbols twelve second part of the chapter reduced to nine heads the transubstantiation of the papists considered and refuted its origin and absurdity why it should be exploded thirteen transubstantiation as feigned by the schoolmen refutation the many superstitions introduced by their error fourteen the fiction of transubstantiation why invented contrary to scripture and the consent of antiquity the term of transubstantiation never used in the early church objection answer fifteen the error of transubstantiation favored by the consecration which was a kind of magical incantation the bread is not a sacrament to itself but to those who receive it the changing of the rod of moses into a serpent gives no countenance to popish transubstantiation no resemblance between it and the words of institution in the supper objection answer sixteen refutation of consubstantiation whence the idea of ubiquity seventeen this ubiquity confounds the natures of christ subtleties answered eighteen absurdities connected with consubstantiation candid exposition of the orthodox view nineteen the nature of the true presence of christ in the supper the true and substantial communion of the body and blood of the lord this orthodox view assailed by turbulent spirits twenty this view vindicated from their calumnies the words of the institution explained in opposition to the glosses of transubstantiators and consubstantiators their subterfuges and absurd blasphemies twenty one why the name of the thing signified is given to the sacramental symbols this illustrated by passages of scripture also by a passage of augustine twenty two refutation of an objection founded on the words this is objection answered twenty three other objections answered twenty four other objections answered no question here as to the omnipotence of god twenty five other objections answered twenty six the orthodox view further confirmed one by consideration of the reality of christ's body two from our saviour's declaration that he would always be in the world this confirmed by the exposition of augustine twenty seven refutation of the sophisms of the ubiquitists the evasion of visible and invisible presence refuted twenty eight the authority of fathers not in favour of these errors as to christ's presence augustine opposed to them twenty nine refutation of the invisible presence maintained by opponents refutation from tertullian from a saying of christ after his resurrection from the definition of a true body and from different passages of scripture thirty ubiquity refuted by various arguments thirty one the imaginary presence of transubstantiators consubstantiators and ubiquitists contrasted with the orthodox doctrine thirty two the nature of our saviour's true presence explained the mode of it incomprehensible thirty three our communion in the blood and flesh of christ spiritual not oral and yet real erroneous view of the schoolmen thirty four this view not favoured by augustine how the wicked eat the body of christ cyril's sentiments as to the eating of the body of christ thirty five 
absurdity of the adoration of sacramental symbols. 36. This adoration condemned, 1. by Christ himself, 2. by the Council of Nice, 3. by ancient custom, 4. by scripture. This adoration is mere idolatry. 37. This adoration inconsistent with the nature and institution of the sacrament, ends for which the sacrament was instituted. 38. Ends for which the sacrament was instituted. 39. True nature of the sacrament, contrasted with the popish observance of it. 40. Nature of an unworthy approach to the Lord's table. The great danger of it. The proper remedy in serious self-examination. 41. The spurious examination introduced by the papists. Refutation. 42. The nature of Christian examination. 43. External rites in the administration of the supper. Many of them indifferent. 44. Duty of frequent communion. This proved by the practice of the church in its purer state and by the canons of the early bishops. 45. Frequent communion in the time of Augustine. The neglect of it censored by Chrysostom. 46. The popish injunction to communicate once a year an execrable invention. 47. Communion in one kind proved to be an invention of Satan. 48. Subterfuges of the papists refuted. 49. The practice of the early church further considered. 50. Conclusion. 1. After God has once received us into his family, it is not that he may regard us in the light of servants, but of sons, performing the part of a kind and anxious parent, and providing for our maintenance during the whole course of our lives. And, not contented with this, he has been pleased by a pledge to assure us of his continued liberality. To this end, he has given another sacrament to his church by the hand of his only begotten son, namely, a spiritual feast at which Christ testifies that he himself is a living bread, John chapter 6, verse 51, on which our souls feed for a true and blessed immortality. Now, as the knowledge of this great mystery is most necessary and, in proportion to its importance, demands an accurate exposition, and Satan, in order to deprive the church of this inestimable treasure, long ago introduced first mists and then darkness to obscure its light and stirred up strife and contention to alienate the minds of the simple from a relish for this sacred food and in our age also has tried the same artifice i will proceed after giving a simple summary adapted to the capacity of the ignorant to explain those difficulties by which satan has tried to ensnare the world first then the signs are bread and wine which represent the invisible food which we receive from the body and blood of Christ. For as God, regenerating us in baptism, engrafts us into the fellowship of his church, and makes us his by adoption, so we have said that he performs the office of a provident parent, in continually supplying the food by which he may sustain and preserve us in the life to which he has begotten us by his word. Moreover, Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to him, that, refreshed by communion with him, we may ever and anon gather new vigor until we reach the heavenly immortality. But as this mystery of the secret union of Christ with believers is incomprehensible by nature, he exhibits its figure and image in visible signs adapted to our capacity. Nay, by giving as it were earnests and badges, he makes it as certain to us as if it were seen by the eye, the familiarity of the similitude giving it access to minds however dull, and showing that souls are fed by Christ just as the corporeal life is sustained by bread and wine. We now, therefore, understand the end which this mystical benediction has in view. 
namely, to assure us that the body of Christ was once sacrificed for us, so that we may now eat it, and eating, feel within ourselves the efficacy of that one sacrifice, that his blood was once shed for us so as to be our perpetual drink. This is the force of the promise which is added, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, etc. The body which was once offered for our salvation, we are enjoined to take and eat, that, while we see ourselves made partakers of it, we may safely conclude that the virtue of that death will be efficacious in us. Hence he terms the cup the covenant in his blood. For the covenant which he once sanctioned by his blood, he in a manner renews, or rather continues, in so far as regards the confirmation of our faith, as often as he stretches forth his sacred blood as drink to us. 2. Pious souls can derive great confidence and delight from this sacrament, as being a testimony that they form one body with Christ, so that everything which is his they may call their own. Hence it follows that we can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life, of which he himself is the heir, is ours, and that the kingdom of heaven, into which he has entered, can no more be taken from us than from him. On the other hand, that we cannot be condemned for our sins, from the guilt of which he absolves us, seeing he has been pleased that these should be imputed to himself as if they were his own. This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. Having become with us the son of man, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. 3. To all these things we have a complete attestation in this sacrament, enabling us certainly to conclude that they are as truly exhibited to us as if Christ were placed in bodily presence before our view, or handled by our hands. For these are words which can never lie nor deceive. Take, eat, drink. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for the remission of sins. In bidding us take, he intimates that it is ours. In bidding us eat, he intimates that it becomes one substance with us. In affirming of his body that it was broken, and of his blood that it was shed for us, he shows that both were not so much his own as ours, because he took and laid down both, not for his own advantage, but for our salvation. And we ought carefully to observe that the chief, and almost the whole energy of the sacrament, consists in these words. It is broken for you, it is shed for you. It would not be of much importance to us that the body and blood of the Lord are now distributed, had they not once been set forth for our redemption and salvation. Wherefore they are represented under bread and wine, that we may learn that they are not only ours, but intended to nourish our spiritual life, that is, as we formerly observed, by the corporeal things which are produced in the sacrament, we are by a kind of analogy conducted to spiritual things. Thus, when bread is given as a symbol of the body of Christ, we must immediately think of this similitude. As bread nourishes, sustains, and protects our bodily life, so the body of Christ is the only food to invigorate and keep alive the soul. When we behold wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must think that such use as wine serves to the body, the same is spiritually bestowed by the blood of Christ. And the use is to foster, refresh, strengthen, and exhilarate. For if we duly consider what profit we have gained by the breaking of his sacred body and the shedding of his blood, 
we shall clearly perceive that these properties of bread and wine, agreeably to this analogy, most appropriately represent it when they are communicated to us. 4. Therefore, it is not the principal part of a sacrament simply to hold forth the body of Christ to us without any higher consideration, but rather to seal and confirm that promise by which he testifies that his flesh is meat indeed, and his blood drink indeed, nourishing us unto life eternal, and by which he affirms that he is the bread of life, of which, whosoever shall eat, shall live for ever. I say, to seal and confirm that promise, and in order to do so, it sends us to the cross of Christ, where that promise was performed and fulfilled in all its parts. For we do not eat Christ duly and savingly unless as crucified, well, with lively apprehension, we perceive the efficacy of his death. When he called himself the bread of life, he did not take that appellation from the sacrament, as some perversely interpret, but such as he was given to us by the Father, such he exhibited himself when becoming partaker of our human mortality. He made us partakers of his divine immortality. When offering himself in sacrifice, he took our curse upon himself, that he might cover us with blessing. When by his death he devoured and swallowed up death, when in his resurrection he raised our corruptible flesh, which he had put on, to glory and incorruption. 5. It only remains that the whole become ours by application. This is done by means of the gospel, and more clearly by the sacred supper, where Christ offers himself to us with all his blessings, and we receive him in faith. The sacrament, therefore, does not make Christ become for the first time the bread of life, but, while it calls to remembrance that Christ was made the bread of life, that we may constantly eat him, it gives us a taste and relish for that bread, and makes us feel its efficacy. For it assures us, first, that whatever Christ did or suffered was done to give us life, and secondly, that this quickening is eternal. By it we are ceaselessly nourished, sustained, and preserved in life. For as Christ would not have been the bread of life to us if he had not been born, if he had not died and risen again, so he could not now be the bread of life, were not the efficacy and fruit of his nativity, death, and resurrection eternal. All this Christ has elegantly expressed in these words. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John chapter 6 verse 51. Doubtless intimating that his body will be as bread in regard to the spiritual life of the soul because it was to be delivered to death for our salvation, and that he extends it to us for food when he makes us partakers of it by faith. Wherefore he once gave himself that he might become bread, when he gave himself to be crucified for the redemption of the world, and he gives himself daily, when in the word of the gospel he offers himself to be partaken by us, inasmuch as he was crucified, when he seals that offer by the sacred mystery of the supper, and when he accomplishes inwardly what he externally designates. Moreover, two faults are here to be avoided. We must neither, by setting too little value on the signs, dissever them from their meanings to which they are in some degree annexed, nor, by immoderately extolling them, seem somewhat to obscure the mysteries themselves. That Christ is the bread of life by which believers are nourished unto eternal life, no man is so utterly devoid of religion as not to acknowledge. But all are not agreed as to the mode of partaking of him. For there are some who define the eating of the flesh of Christ and the drinking of his blood to be, in one word, nothing more than believing in Christ himself. But Christ seems to me to have intended to teach something more express and more sublime in that noble discourse in which he recommends the eating of his flesh, namely, that we are quickened by the true partaking of him, which he designated by the terms eating and drinking, lest any one should suppose that the life which we obtain from him is obtained by simple knowledge. 
For as it is not the sight but the eating of bread that gives nourishment to the body, so the soul must partake of Christ truly and thoroughly, that by his energy it may grow up into spiritual life. Meanwhile, we admit that this is nothing else than the eating of faith, and that no other eating can be imagined. But there is this difference between their mode of speaking and mine. According to them, to eat is merely to believe, while I maintain that the flesh of Christ is eaten by believing, because it is made ours by faith, and that that eating is the effect and fruit of faith. Or, if you will have it more clearly, according to them, eating is faith, whereas it rather seems to me to be a consequence of faith. The difference is little in words, but not little in reality. For, although the Apostle teaches that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17, no one will interpret that dwelling to be faith. All see that it explains the admirable effect of faith, because to it it is owing that believers have Christ dwelling in them. In this way, the Lord was pleased, by calling himself the bread of life, not only to teach that our salvation is treasured up in the faith of his death and resurrection, but also, by virtue of true communication with him, his life passes into us and becomes ours, just as bread, when taken for food, gives vigor to the body. 6. When Augustine, whom they claim as their patron, wrote that we eat by believing, all he meant was to indicate that that eating is of faith and not of the mouth. This I deny not, but I at the same time add that by faith we embrace Christ, not as appearing at a distance, but as uniting himself to us, he being our head and we his members. I do not absolutely disapprove of that mode of speaking. I only deny that it is a full interpretation, if they mean to define what it is to eat the flesh of Christ. I see that Augustine repeatedly used this form of expression, as when he said, unless ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, is a figurative expression enjoining us to have communion with our Lord's passion, and sweetly and usefully to treasure in our memory that his flesh was crucified and wounded for us. Also when he says, these three thousand men who were converted at the preaching of Peter, Acts chapter 2 verse 41, by believing, drank the blood which they had cruelly shed. But in very many other passages he admirably commends faith for this, that by means of it our souls are not less refreshed by the communion of the blood of Christ than our bodies with the bread which they eat. The very same thing is said by Chrysostom. Christ makes us his body, not by faith only, but in reality. He does not mean that we obtain this blessing from any other quarter than from faith. He only intends to prevent anyone from thinking of mere imagination when he hears the name of faith. I say nothing of those who hold that the supper is merely a mark of external profession, because I think I sufficiently refuted their error when I treated of the sacraments in general. Chapter 14, Section 13 Only let my readers observe that when the cup is called the covenant in blood, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, the promise which tends to confirm faith is expressed. Hence it follows that unless we have respect to God and embrace what he offers, we do not make a right use of the sacred supper. 7. I am not satisfied with the view of those who, while acknowledging that we have some kind of communion with Christ, only make us partakers of the Spirit, omitting all mention of flesh and blood, as if it were said to no purpose at all that his flesh is meat indeed and his blood is drink indeed, that we have no life unless we eat that flesh and drink that blood, and so forth. Therefore, if it is evident that full communion with Christ goes beyond their description, which is too confined, I will attempt briefly to show how far it extends, before proceeding to speak of the contrary vice of excess. 
for I shall have a longer discussion with these hyperbolical doctors who, according to their gross ideas, fabricate an absurd mode of eating and drinking, and transfigure Christ, after divesting him of his flesh, into a phantom, if indeed it be lawful to put this great mystery into words, a mystery which I feel, and therefore freely confess that I am unable to comprehend with my mind, so far am I from wishing any one to measure its sublimity by my feeble capacity. Nay, I rather exhort my readers not to confine their apprehension within these two narrow limits, but to attempt to rise much higher than I can guide them. For whenever the subject is considered, after I have done my utmost, I feel that I have spoken far beneath its dignity. And though the mind is more powerful in thought than the tongue in expression, it too is overcome and overwhelmed by the magnitude of the subject. All then that remains is to break forth in admiration of the mystery, which it is plain that the mind is inadequate to comprehend, or the tongue to express. I will, however, give a summary of my view as I best can, not doubting its truth, and therefore trusting that it will not be disapproved by pious breasts. 8. First of all, we are taught by the scriptures that Christ was from the beginning the living word of the Father, the fountain and origin of life, from which all things should always receive life. Hence John at one time calls him the word of life, and at another says that in him was life, intimating that he, even then pervading all creatures, instilled into them the power of breathing and living. He afterwards adds that the life was at length manifested, when the Son of God, assuming our nature, exhibited himself in bodily form to be seen and handled. For although he previously diffused his virtue into the creatures, yet as man, because alienated from God by sin, had lost the communication of life, and saw death on every side impending over him, he behoved, in order to regain the hope of immortality, to be restored to the communion of that word. How little confidence can it give you to know that the word of God, from which you are at the greatest distance, contains within himself the fullness of life, whereas in yourself, in whatever direction you turn, you see nothing but death. But ever since that fountain of life began to dwell in our nature, he no longer lies hid at a distance from us, but exhibits himself openly for our participation. Nay, the very flesh in which he resides he makes vivifying to us, that by partaking of it we may feed for immortality. I, says he, am that bread of life, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John chapter 6 verse 48 and 51 By these words he declares, not only that he is life, inasmuch as he is the eternal word of God who comes down to us from heaven, but, by coming down, gave vigor to the flesh which he assumed, that a communication of life to us might thence emanate. Hence, too, he adds, that his flesh is meat indeed, and that his blood is drink indeed. By this food believers are reared to eternal life. The pious, therefore, have admirable comfort in this, that they now find life in their own flesh, for they not only reach it by easy access, but have it spontaneously set forth before them. Let them only throw open the door of their hearts, that they may take it into their embrace, and they will obtain it. 9. The flesh of Christ, however, has not such power in itself as to make us live, seeing that by its own first condition it was subject to mortality, and even now, when endued with immortality, lives not by itself. Still, it is properly said to be life-giving, as it is pervaded with the fullness of life for the purpose of transmitting it to us. In this sense I understand our Saviour's words as Cyril interprets them. As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. John chapter 5 verse 26. 
for there properly he is speaking not of the properties which he possessed with the father from the beginning but of those with which he was invested in the flesh in which he appeared accordingly he shows that in his humanity also fullness of life resides so that every one who communicates in his flesh and blood at the same time enjoys the participation of life the nature of this may be explained by a familiar example as water is at one time drunk out of the fountain at another drawn at another led away by conduits to irrigate the fields and yet does not flow forth of itself for all these uses but is taken from its source which with perennial flow ever and anon sends forth a new and sufficient supply so the flesh of christ is like a rich and inexhaustible fountain which transfuses into us the life flowing forth from the godhead into itself now who sees not that the communion of the flesh and blood of christ is necessary to all who aspire to the heavenly life hence those passages of the apostle the church is the body of christ his fullness he is the head from whence the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth maketh increase of the body ephesians chapter one verse twenty three and chapter four verse fifteen and sixteen our bodies are the members of christ first corinthians chapter six verse fifteen we perceive that all these things cannot possibly take place unless he adheres to us wholly in body and spirit but the very close connection which unites us to his flesh he illustrated with still more splendid epithets when he said that we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones ephesians chapter five verse thirty at length to testify that the matter is too high for utterance he concludes with exclaiming this is a great mystery ephesians chapter five verse thirty two it were therefore extreme infatuation not to acknowledge the communion of believers with the body and blood of the lord a communion which the apostle declares to be so great that he chooses rather to marvel at it than to explain it. End of section 33. Recording by Jen Raimundo.